Hey, this is Zane Horowitz with the Oregon Poison Center, and we are in August of 2015 doing a sort of an extended version journal club about a topic that's um, pretty important. Um, I'll explain about X-Trip and what they do, and we're going to review not all of their articles, but probably the main articles that they've published to date in the last two or three years. And why this comes up is, is first of all, Years ago, about 25 years ago, we were trying to come up with a, a mnemonic for when patients who are overdosed might need to be dialyzed. And it was several different versions that went through it, but the most recent version we had was ABCD Let Me PP. So what that stands for, okay, is aspirin for the A, B, bromide, which we're not talking about today, C, carbamazepine, D, Depakote for valproic acid, L, lithium, E, ethylene glycol, T, theophylline and thallium, M, methanol, E was a bit of a fudge for excessive acids like metformin, and PP was either phenobar, paraquat, or paracetamol, for those of you listening across the pond. Um, so we can either do it that way. So A, B, C, D, let me, PP. And what we're going to talk about is this extra group. So I'm going to go over there. Back in uh, Clintox and 212, 2012, they uh, told the world what they were going to do, and then we're going to talk about the specifics. So this is an interesting group of toxicologists and uh, nephrologists and pharmacologists and a variety of other specialists from 30 different professional societies, and they sat down, and they were going to address extracorporeal treatments, ECTR, as you might hear that abbreviation mentioned many times today. Um, they sat down, they were going to do a systemic literature review in many languages, translate them into English if necessary, and assign subgroups to address each of the 24 poisons that they wanted to address. Now, we're only going to get through about 10 of them today. Some of them haven't been published, and some very interesting ones are, are yet to come. So we'll have to come back in maybe a year or two and pick up a few of those. But they mentioned that the first instance of extracorporeal treatment was in 1913 when um, a researcher named Abel actually dialyzed salicylates out of dogs. And so, therefore, one of the first things we will talk about will be aspirin and Tylenol, very common uh, ingestions. So this extra group is experts from all over uh, the globe and all over specialties that would be... Uh, here. What they tried to do is pull articles, assess them for how applicable they are to the work group that would be assigned to them. And they were representatives from America, from Canada, from Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, China, Europe, France, Spain, Latin America, and a variety of other societies, both in emergency medicine and nephrology and pediatrics. And they uh, pulled records, they analyzed them, they threw out some that really were irrelevant, and they tried to make a few um, statements for each of these. So listen carefully to the words as the people present, because some of them are very important. So they'll have a statement proposal that usually leads off and summarizes the available literature and why this may or may not be important. They rated the evidence as A, high, B, moderate, C, low, and D, very low. And as of many things in toxicology, many of this is not randomized clinical trials, but case reports and case series. They usually then have a toxokinetic statement saying whether the poison 
of the subject is dialyzable or not. A general statement, and they use some very specific language. Here's the words to look for. Strong recommendation is with language that says we recommend or the practitioner should do something. For a weak recommendation is we suggest or the practitioner might do something. And a neutral position is it would be reasonable to do something. So those are the magical words that you listen for as we go through this uh, process here. The final format is pretty much the same. You can tell because they publish these in a variety of journals across the specialties. Some modification for each journal needed to be done. So sometimes the explanation is in the front or the back of the article, but we'll go through it um, accordingly. So that is the sort of intro to what we're doing today. And so first up is our fellow Jillian, which will talk about acetaminophen poisoning and the first of these articles. Great. Okay. All right. So let's start with a little bit of background. Acetaminophen is the most common analgesic worldwide. It's one of the com most commonly used medications in overdose and the leading cause of drug-induced liver failure uh, in U.S., U.K., and some other countries as well. And uh, in fact, um, in one study in 2012 looking at uh, NPDES data, one-fifth of single-substance fatal exposures were attributed to acetaminophen, or acetaminophen-containing drugs. And one thing that's mentioned here, which is interesting, is, is the mention of massive ingestions. And that's really where dialysis is going to be coming into play. And these are ingestions that present uh, with signs of mitochondrial dysfunction, so acidosis, altered mental status. And this is going to happen prior to the onset of the liver injury that we normally think about with acetaminophen toxicity. So this is going to be uh, happening really quite rapidly. Um, and uh, typically, um, this is thought to occur because the ingested dose is so large that you overcome the protective effect of NAC, which is obviously being given in these patients. And you don't have enough NAC around to completely reverse the mitochondrial injury. And it's noted that you know a, a number of fatalities in acetaminophen happen because there's delay to initiating NAC therapy. What's mentioned specifically here is that there are patients in whom NAC is being given appropriately who uh, still may overwhelm the, the capability of that NAC therapy. So at, at very high concentrations, you may have a situation where you essentially um, have insufficient NAC dosing. A little bit of the pharmacology. Um, it's uh, COX inhibitor, so you inhibit central prostaglandin synthesis. Um, generally, absorption is complete by about four hours, uh, except with sustained relief preparations of very, very large ingestions, uh, like the ones we're talking about today, or co-ingestions that slow gastric motility. Protein binding is low, and volume of distribution is 0.9 to 1 liters per kilogram. These are important numbers to know for uh, figuring out if this is a dialyzable agent. So basically, you have a massive acetaminophen overdose, um, you begin to form pre-NAPI, and uh, that toxic metabolite uh, basically starts causing damage, particularly in the central lobular hepatocytes, where there's loss of cyp 2 And you have cell necrosis and hepatic function and end up with a liver, classic liver failure picture that we're familiar with. It's really in, in ingestions of, of over about 500 mg per kg, where patients may be coming in with this severe uh, 
rapid onset of mitochondrial dysfunction with altered mental status, very elevated lactates. Um, this might occur about 12 hours post uh, ingestion, again, prior to the development of hepatotoxicity. And acetaminophen concentrations in these cases will often be very high, over 750 um, mg per liter. And um, basically, uh, the the idea is that you try to prevent mitochondrial dysfunction by using that, which scavenges that map. Um, and many patients with acetaminophen toxicity um, also do nap. People develop acute kidney injury. And this may be another reason to eventually dialyze the patient, but what we're talking about here are massive ingestions where even prior to the formation of, of nephrotoxicity from NAP, um, the patient uh, has such a large ingestion of acetaminophen, you actually need to dialyze the toxin itself. So um, Dr. Harwood's already reviewed the methodology, so we'll skip that. These are all fairly consistent here. Um, what, what the team did here was review 24 articles, um, one randomized controlled trial, one observation study, and 20 case reports and case series. There were two pharmacokinetic studies as well. And all of those case reports were acute uh, acetaminophen overdoses. Uh, they looked at a, the, the one randomized control trial, just looked at whether or not you could dialyze acetaminophen patients, and they looked at 16 patients and found that clinical outcomes didn't really differ between those that got uh, dialysis and those that did not. We had another observational study just uh, looking at patients who were treated with uh, hemoperfusion, hemodialysis, or both, and again, just basically found that acetaminophen half like did decrease during hemoperfusion from about 16 hours to about three hours in those overdoses. They then state that really they weren't able to draw any reliable con uh, conclusions from the case reports and case series, and we'll find that fairly frequently across these types of studies. They note that acetaminophen is dialyzable. As we mentioned, it has low protein binding and a low volume distribution. Uh, and they talk about uh, one study in six patients where they essentially extracted about 11% of the dose of acetaminophen. So they're defining acetaminophen as a moderately dialyzable agent um, in, in a, a couple of studies they looked at there. So basically, the I think we should just skip to sort of the, the major recommendations here. In general, um, dialysis is suggested in very severe acetaminophen poisoning. That's a 2D level of evidence. Um, so fairly weak. Um, if the acetaminophen concentration is more than 1,000 mg per deciliter and NAC is not being used, you should dialyze the patient, or it's recommended. Um, however, if the patient presents with altered mental status, metabolic acidosis, and elevated lactate, and then acetaminophen that's more than 700 mg per liter and NAC is not being administered, then dialysis is recommended. So uh, essentially, um, it depends on whether or not you're co-administering MAC and changes the recommendation. So even if you give MAC, if your acetaminophen is more than 900 and you present with these findings of mitochondrial dysfunction, dialysis should be considered at that point. The recommendation of when to stop dialysis is very vague. It's recommended until sustained clinical improvement is apparent. The preferred modality is intermittent as opposed to continuous or CRT, and NAC therapy should be continued uh, during dialysis at an increased rate, and that's level 1D of evidence. 
So there's not a lot of specific information there, but the NAC dosing should be increased during the process of dialysis. And that's really the, the bottom line in looking at this study. Yeah, so it's sort of, this was maybe one of the more confusing ones in that they had three different numbers and there isn't a bright line in the sand is basically what it is. If you don't have NAC, your threshold may be lower. If you do have NAC and things are going sour, you have acidosis and coma, then your threshold, uh, you know, probably is lower at that point. Um, so, yeah, um, there's not a lot of studies. I think we've talked about this on a handful of times, um, but we haven't really done it here at our institution. Some other places have certainly published on this. I think we'll see more of this. It'll be interesting to see how this turns up over the next year or so, because uh, we do occasionally see these cases where your first point on the plot is in the 800, 900 range, and they're sick. And that's probably where it makes the most sense to get that early, rather than wait to see which way things are going. And have them deteriorate and not be able to be dialyzed. All right. It's, uh, interesting in a lot of these, they say if you don't have NAC or if you don't have you know, ethanol or pimepazol, it right. seems like you would, if you have dialysis, you would have that stuff. you're always going to have that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they were trying to write for the broadest possible audience out there, I mean, throughout the world. So maybe there's places where dialysis is readily available, but some pharmaceuticals aren't. I mean, NAC would be sort of amazing not to be available in many places where dialysis would be, but I know some of these countries may or may not have approved some of the antidotes we'll talk about today, and so therefore I think some of that does come up. Well, um, jumping from that, thanks Jillian, to our the one where the Dr. Abel first realized that you can get the aspirin out of dogs. Let's talk a little bit about salicylate poisoning with uh, Matt Noble, our new first-year fellow. Yeah, so we talk often and extensively about salicylates, um, but just as a brief refresher, we're talking about all forms of salicylates, including the common acetyl salicylic acid, or aspirin, and methyl salicylate. Um, a couple of reasons, pertinent reasons, that uh, uh, that at least pharmacologically it's amenable to uh, dialysis are that this is a, uh, a medication with a very low volume of distribution, around 0.2 liters per kilo. Um, it's a small molecule, about 180 Daltons, and um, while typically bound extensively to albumin, um, that actually changes during an overdose um, situation. <coughs> so, all <coughs> excuse me, all three features that are sort of amenable to dialysis. Salicylates. Um, uh, you know, cause a metabolic acidosis, you accumulate lactate, keto acids, you uncouple your oxidative phosphorylation, uh, you fail in your synthesis of ATP, um, and obviously there can be multiple um, organ, effect, organ systems affected and serious severe clinical manifestations, um, including death. So... I'm going to jump ahead just for a second and talk a little bit about the toxicokinetics before returning to the studies that they include. Um, we have a sense from a lot of data that they present that this is a dialyzable molecule. Um, Zane mentioned uh, the early canine studies. Uh, human studies seem to show that 
um, anywhere between 50 and 60 percent of the ingested dose um, of salicylates are removed during dialysis. Um, obviously that varies a little bit with type of dialysis, um, but all told it's a level B evidence that um, ECTR uh, does succeed in reducing the salicylate level in humans. Um, as a parenthetical side note, we talk oftentimes about alkalinizing the urine and how effective that is. Um, this particular group cited uh, an article, uh, or, or reviewed actually an article that's often cited about how um, alkalinization and uh, hemodialysis are quote-unquote equivalent. Um, interestingly enough, that article was in the late 90s, and it's, a, it's essentially a case report of one person who had two separate independent overdoses of Tylenol, and one time um, the providers alkalized him, and the other time they dialyzed him. So unfortunately, I don't think there's great evidence to necessarily support the claim, at least by this one study. Uh, there may be others that uh, you get equivalent uh, reductions in the salicylate level. They didn't, I mean, as two case studies, they don't present a whole lot of evidence. But in any case, uh, the, the group seems to conclude that um, high-efficiency ECTR can generate, um, they, they claim, at least three times the clearance as alkalinization. So with that in mind, let's take a step back and look at the results. Um, of the 306 articles or studies that they identified, they excluded 222, leaving 84 studies uh, from which to draw the conclusions. These included one uh, controlled trial, three animal studies, and 80 case reports or case series. Um, anytime we hear controlled trial, we get a little bit excited, but um, it's important to note that um, it was not only... Uh, the oldest study included from 1964, but it was a trial of 13 patients total, and they were using peritoneal dialysis, which we know is a, a less efficient means of um, dialyzing. And, and that uh, particular trial was fraught with some other problems as far as um, low quality. That said, uh, the total number of patients that they reviewed was 143. They had 14 fatalities, um, and they present the data in uh, Table 3 in its form. All told, I guess skipping ahead to their recommendations, um, it's essentially a very low quality of evidence for all of their recommendations. Um, and due to all sorts of problems, variability in the amount ingested in all of these case reports and case series, differences in the acuity of poisoning, um, the time duration from exposure to treatment, and then maybe most importantly, the various other treatment modalities that the patients were undergoing. Um, that said, they, they uh, do sort of finish with a level 1D recommendation um, for intermittent uh, hemodialysis in severe salicylate poisoning. So let's talk for a second about their indications. So ECTR is recommended for uh, salicylate concentration over 7.2 millimoles per liter, or um, at least commonly among our laboratory measurements, 100 milligrams per deciliter. That is a 1D recommendation. 
Similarly, in the absence or in the presence of um, impaired kidney function, which they um, sort of uh, touch on briefly, uh, that concentration threshold drops to 90 milligrams per deciliter. Um, perhaps more importantly, as evidence of end organ damage from salicylate poisoning, uh, most notably in the form of altered mental status, uh, and or the presence of new hypoxemia requiring supplemental oxygen. So those then are their four indications for ECTR. Um, in addition to those, uh, there are level 2D recommendation. I'm sorry, there's level 1D recommendation for, um, no, I have that right, 2D, sorry, level 2D recommendations for dialyzing if salicylate concentrations are above 90 milligrams per deciliter uh, or 80, above 80 in the presence of impaired kidney function if your standard therapy, so supportive measures and uh, alkalinization fails, um, or if the systemic pH is less than 7.2 in that situation. Um, you uh, should continue the ECTR until clinical improvement is apparent. That's a necessary um, condition. And then either the salicylate level is less than 19 milligrams per deciliter, or um, you've done dialysis for at least four to six hours with stable, um, I'm sorry, with uh, salicylate concentrations that are not available. As far as what modality, the uh, optimal choice seems to be intermittent hemodialysis. That's a level 1D recommendation. Um, alternatively, um, other forms of ECTR are acceptable if uh, hemodialysis is not um, available. And then in neonates, uh, exchange transfusion is permissible. And then um, as a sort of uh, side recommendation, in between the intermittent dialysis runs, it's important to continue alkalinizing urine. I think those are the salient points of the review. Yeah, I mean, we, we, do, I mean, we do run into lots of uh, salicylate intoxications, and we don't have a magic number, and sometimes we do get some uh, pushback as people look up at some reference and they say, well, you don't have to dialyze until it's 100. So I think this recommendation gave you some wiggle room, like you can use 100, but if you're failing therapy or you have impaired kidney function or for any number, if you have altered mental status, which is probably the real crux here, is when you start developing severe salicylate encephalopathy, I mean, you need to dialyze, and of all the substances we talk about, it's probably the one where you need to dialyze. Now. So probably the most important thing is to get the patient into a facility where they can do dialysis so that decision, once it's made, everyone's on board, that they can just go ahead and do it. We often start that process locally when patients' levels are getting around 70 or so. So you sort of failed therapy at 80 is very far away from that. You give them the best shot at 70, and if they're going south, then despite bicarb, and they actually use a specific number of pH less than 7.2, then it's time to, to dialyze. So this is, I think, reasonably helpful when you're trying to have that middle-of-the-night conversation with a nephrologist about whether this can wait or whether this needs to be done urgently or, or not. And these are the tough ones, because we have seen more than a few over the many, many years. Aspirin levels die very quickly when they start getting encephalopathic. So, good, yeah, another uh, important one, this was just published this month in the Annals of Emergency Medicine uh, to a, a, a nice wide audience of emergency physicians. Um, 
the next uh, article we want to talk about is yet uh, a third acid. We talked about the acids of acetaminophen and salicylate, but the third acid that we ought to consider is one that a lot of nephrologists sometimes, we've had some conversations, haven't really heard much about or even deny that it even exists. So uh, Nina, our fellow from Utah, will talk about metformin-associated lactic acidosis and the indications for dialysis. Yeah, so um, metformin is a vitamin, um, and so it's actually, interestingly, the most commonly prescribed oral anti-diabetic drug in the U.S., Europe, and Australia. Um, and how it works, uh, it kind of it inhibits gluconeogenesis, facilitates cellular glucose uptake, and it decreases insulin resistance in people with a, a moderately functioning pancreas, right? Um, and so interestingly, they note that um, metformin toxicity has been associated with about a 30% mortality. Um, and it has a really poorly defined um, use of hemodialysis. And so some of the kinetics, um, bioavailability for both the IR and ER formulations is about 55%. It's not protein-bound. Volume of distribution is pretty large. It's 1 to 5 liters per kilogram. It, and it is excreted unchanged from the kidneys. So I thought this was interesting. So they look at therapeutic peak concentrations, too, in the studies that they pulled. And so the therapeutic peak concentration is 1.5 to 3 milligrams per milliliter. And it's pretty interesting how high they actually note them to be in these toxic patients. Um, and it does have a multiphasic half-life. So you have the first part of the uh, elimination to be about 4 to 8 hours. And then there's a terminal elimination half-life that lasts about 20 hours, and that's in healthy kidneys. So in diseased kidneys, that uh, amount of time is even longer. And so they do have a really important um, disclaimer in this, that this extra uh, study only applies to metformin, that it does not apply to finformin or buformin, um, and it's only for this one drug. So metformin-associated lactic acidosis, or MALA, um, can be, there's two types. There's incidental or chronic, and then there's uh, intentional or acute. And to have, to be diagnosed with this, or to, to really have it, you have to have a blood lactate that's greater than 5 millimoles per liter, and a pH less than 7.35. And so the mechanism of toxicity, it inhibits pyruvate carboxylase, which means you can't convert your lactate to pyruvate. And so the most common, oh sorry, so that equals an increased production and decreased metabolism of lactate. Um, and it's also called the type B um, lactic acidosis. So the most common factor contributing to metformin toxicity is uh, kidney dysfunction. And it's further complicated by other processes that also increase lactate, like hypotension, dehydration, ischemia, sepsis, and even liver impairment. And so the prevalence of this uh, metformin-associated lactic acidosis is about 0.01 to 0.09 cases per 1,000 patient years. So it's, it's not super common, according to this um, kind of study that they did, but, you know, um, still pretty dangerous. And so pre what they note that previous studies um, show that high metformin concentration, so anything greater than 20 to 50 milligrams per liter, um, are prognostic of a really poor outcome. Um, let's 
senior. So with so they identified 175 studies. There were no randomized controlled trials, and the majority of them were retrospective, observational. There were 292 patients that were included that had uh, this metformin-associated lactic acidosis, and 80% of those patients were chronic toxicities. The average ingestion was 54.6 grams, um, and the, they found that the acute group had higher peaks, higher lactates, and higher pHs. And so uh, acute kidney injury predominated was the predominant comorbid condition at admission in both types of exposures, acute and chronic. And they also noted that these patients, um, they had decreased consciousness and hypotension. They're really common symptoms in the acute cases. Of those that developed the life-threatening symptoms, the majority were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic at admission. So, kind of interesting. Um, they note 63 fatalities that had patient-level data, um, and they had an additional 72 deaths that they noted, but they were the data for those were aggregated, so that made it kind of difficult. Um, they did find the death was more common in acute exposure, so 30% um, died with acute exposure versus 19.5% in the chronic. Um, and the mean peak concentration was 67.3 milligrams per liter compared to 56.6 milligrams per liter in those that survived. So it's not a very big difference, which is interesting. Um, they did find that 50% of the fatalities occur several days after admission and after starting ECTR. And that limiting factor for dialysis was the large volume of distribution. Um, and so they, they noted one study in particular that was uh, in-stage renal disease research, and that um, that study found that really only 15%, 15% of a daily dose of metformin is removed by hemodialysis, um, which isn't very much. <laughs> So the recommendations, so they recommend that metformin is moderately dialyzable and give it a level C, which is a recommendation, which is low, low um, evidence. And that they do note that dialyzability varies with kidney function and ECTR modality. They found that it was more dialyzable with intermittent hemodialysis and with other modalities like, like the CRRT, continuous kind of stuff. Um, and so they do say that um, ECTR is recommended in severe metformin poisoning. And um, due to the narrow window of severely toxic versus therapeutic metformin concentrations, um, the X-TRIP group did vote not to include a value in these recommendations and in their indications. So they have no value that they say you should dialyze at this point. So um, they recommend dialysis, some form of dialysis, whenever you have a lactate over 20, a blood pH less than or equal to 7, um, or standard therapy fails, and that includes supportive measures and even uh, bicarbonate. And then they say that dialysis is suggested if you have a lactate that's 15 to 20, um, and a blood pH that is 7 to 7.1, which I think is an interesting, very narrow range there. Um, and then comorbid conditions that should lower the threshold for starting the analysis are if the patient has impaired kidney function, shock, decreased consciousness, or liver failure. And then cessation of dialysis um, should happen when your lactate is less than 3 and your pH is greater than 
Um, and so they said intermittent hemodialysis is preferred with a bicarb buffer, but if CRRT is all you have, then that's acceptable. Um, and then after your initial dialysis session, you can they actually recommend that you can pick either intermittent or CRRT is appropriate if they need follow-up sessions. That's about it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, great. I think there's um, useful because I think a lot of these have been like obscure case reports and we've always had this d discussion about MALA, which is the metformin sociolactic acidosis, which applies to chronic use. They sort of introduced the term early on of MILA, which is metformin-induced lactic acidosis, which is something we're always trying to explain, which is if you take enough of it, you will in fact 100% of the time get lactic acidosis. The question is the, the degree. And again, listening for their language, they suggest dialysis with pHs in the 7.1 down to 7.0, but they definitely recommend it with pHs below 7, or if they're in shock or uh, liver failure or a coma. Um, the problem with a lot of these cases is they don't look as bad as their lactate suggests. You know, they kind of feel like they have aches and pains and blues and they're sweaty, you know, and they have a lactate of 15, and so they're very, very hard to sort out. And you can buy carbon fluids, and they often just get worse with time. So these are another one where I think you often have to dialyze rather emergently. Um, interestingly, they recommended, as will be a recommendation for several other substances on our list, that you leave the dialysis catheter in after your four-hour run, because there can be rebounds, because they metformin, even though a lot of it's not taken out, it's still floating around, causing this blind pathway of pyruvate to lactate switch. And it's, there still may be more lactic acidosis, perhaps of a significant quantity to, to remove. But this also is a hot off the press from Critical Care Medicine Journal in August of 2015. So I think both of those new articles are important um, literature to have in our quiver, if you will, when we have to have that midnight discussion with our consultants. Um, the next one up is um, barbiturates which don't come up very often anymore. Um, there used to be more of this discussion, but we don't use a lot of phenobarb for many things. But some countries that are included in the global perspective do use it for seizure control. So to discuss this uh, agent, we have our fellow Kate Brown. Yeah, so um, barbiturates have been used for quite some time now, and uh, like you said, they're not used too much anymore, but in 2008, the extra group reports that they were the 15th most common class of drug associated with fatal poisoning in the United States. Um, so that's attributed to their narrow therapeutic index. Um, so they have his, uh, historically high incidence of fatal and non-fatal poisonings. Um, and of the barbiturates, you know, barbitol is the most common reported poisoning. Um, and we have a couple different uh, act or, uh, we have short-acting barbiturates, we have intermediate-acting barbiturates, and long-acting barbiturates. Um, for the sake of this article, intermediate barbiturates aren't really looked at because they're not readily available in the United States. They've been phased out, essentially. Um, patients that were on them could continue taking them, but they're no longer prescribed um, for use. Uh, basically, the short-acting barbiturates, like pentobarbital, uh, tend to be more protein-bound and lipid-soluble, and they're mostly metabolized by the liver, having less than 5% excreted unchanged in the urine. 
Um, so their volume of distribution is anywhere between um, 0.5 to 1. Um, and then with our phenobarbital, our long-acting barbiturate, it's uh, more rapidly excreted as an active drug by the kidneys. Um, it's estimated that 20 to 25% is excreted unchanged in the kidneys. And it has a smaller volume of distribution, uh, reported 0.25 to 1.2, so a little wider range there. Um, but it is less lipid soluble, so that makes it more prone to be dialyzed. And the mechanisms of barbiturate poisoning tend to be severe because barbiturates have direct effects on the CNS. Uh, so basically, you get this sedative hypnotic effect, um, and that results in indirect effects in the pulmonary, pulmonary and cardiovascular systems. Um, so basically, you get suppression of your respiratory center, uh, which can lead to uh, death, and that is primarily from aspiration pneumonia due to respiratory depression. And then the cardiovascular effects are attributed to the suppression of the vasomotor center. Um, and patients with chronic heart failure may be more prone to um, having these serious uh, cardiovascular effects. And that also has implications for hemodialysis as well because um, hypotension may occur when the vasomotor center is um, depressed, and that could reduce the efficacy of extracorporeal removal. So, um, basically, the therapeutic range of barbiturates tends to be 10 to 25 uh, milligrams per liter, and about 50 milligrams per liter we can see a coma. And uh, there are reports historically that greater than 80 milligrams per liter is fatal. So. Uh, Historically, they've managed barbiturates uh, with uh, urinary alkalization because these are weak acids, uh, more so for phenobarbital than pentobarbital because phenobarbital's PKA is a little lower. Um, and they've moved away from that now because uh, they found that multi-dose activated charcoal is superior and uh, it may enhance elimination with little improvement in clinical outcomes. Of course, no therapy comes without risk. Um, since barbiturates decrease gastric emptying, you have uh, increased risks of gut perforation and impaction, things such of that nature. So basically, um, from there, they wanted to look at, obviously, how dialyzable these are. So they conducted a literature search, and uh, their search turned up 114 articles that span a time period from 1951 until, I believe, uh, let's see, 2013, so quite some time. And for the sake of relevance and modern uh, dialysis equipment, they just focused on the last 20 years. Um, so they had 114 articles, 74 of which were case reports, um, 40 were case series. So um, they didn't have any randomized clinical trials, uh, just case reports and case, case series. So. The dialyzability was determined as a level B for long-acting barbiturates. Um, they said that they are dialyzable, and the um, the short-acting barbiturates may be moderately dialyzable, and that's level C evidence. And Table three uh, in the article kind of highlights the last 20 years of case reports, and, and as you can see here. Um, the majority of reports are phenobarbital with a, maybe two or three um, pentobarbitals sprinkled in. Uh, so we have an overwhelmingly larger amount of evidence 
about phenobarbital, not so much about the short-acting agents. Um, what's interesting about all of these cases, too, to keep in mind, is a lot of them have similar clinical features. Um, so most of these patients had the main clinical feature described as a coma. Um, so these are severely poisoned patients. Um, and then moving on. So basically, their general statement was that um, they recommend it in severe, long-acting barbiturate poisonings, and that's a level 1D recommendation. Um, and this is based on a risk-versus-benefit because there are no uh, randomized controlled trials. So uh, the rationale for this recommendation is that basically um, death is common despite supportive care measures uh, without extracorporeal removal. So um, there's also no antidote for these agents, and significant improvement um, with removal from extracorporeal removal versus through the stool. So um, there's just some evidence in favor that you know, we better do something instead of do nothing because we don't have many options. And the complications of extracorporeal removal are very limited. Uh, they don't happen very often. And it may decrease the cost because a lot of these patients are in coma. They are on ventilator support. So it, it could be, you know, a good thing to dialyze them. And uh, it, they just strongly suggest that these patients should be high risk. Um, and they do also suggest that um, multi-dose activated charcoal and extracorporeal removal could provide better removal. So that was one of their, you know, lingo there that they suggest that. So there's not really evidence to say it, but it's possible. Um, so their indications for hemodialysis um, are the following. Most of them are 1D uh, level of evidence. Um, so if your patient has prolonged coma, or if there's potential for prolonged coma, they're indicated. Um, if they have shock that wasn't responsive to fluid resuscitation, that's an indication. Um, and despite use of multi-dose multi activated charcoal, the toxicity persists, uh, you should dialyze them. Um, and uh, more along those lines, if the toxic dose or uh, if the concentration rises or remains elevated, after multi-dose activated charcoal to level 2D that you should dialyze. And um, just in general, if mechanical ventilation is present, you should dialyze too. Um, and these indications are there because most death, like we said earlier, are attributed to these problems. So uh, they also say that extracorporeal removal will have the most benefit if it's possible to start within 24 hours of the barbiturate exposure. Um, so if these patients rapidly decline, it's important that you consider getting the nephrologist on the phone. Um, and if you avoid a prolonged coma, you should avoid the sequelae that comes with that. So again, it's really important if you have a rapidly progressive patient. Um, what's interesting about these recommendations is that they found that the concentration and dose were not considered to be reliable indicators for dialysis. Um, so with that said, you know, a lot of patients won't necessarily experience these clinical um, symptoms if they're not above a serum concentration of 100 milligrams per liter. So that was just something they kind of said with regard. Um, they're not saying that it couldn't be related to the dose and the concentration. Um, but again, they said it's unlikely you would see these 
patients who have serum concentrations less than 100 milligrams. So kind of uh, protecting themselves there a little, I think. Um, and early referral for dialysis is appropriate when there's uh, a mass overdose or it's expected that there's going to be a very large serum concentration of barbiturates. So um, those are just some more things to keep in mind when considering to dialyze a patient. And as far as the modality of extracorporeal removal, um, they said that intermittent hemodialysis is preferred. Um, hemoperfusion is just as effective, but we said it's kind of limited due to the availability of equipment and the columns that might be available. So um, they say that intermittent hemodialysis is just more feasible. Um, CRRT is acceptable if hemodialysis is unavailable. Um, but basically, they just have lower flow rates, um, so they pretty much don't clear it as fast as the other methods. So it's not always um, the best. And they said that uh, PD uh, should be avoided um, if they don't find it beneficial in these patients. Um, and as far as cessation goes, um, they don't have again like a laboratory marker for cessation. It's just clinical improvement. So patient comes out of coma, patient doesn't require as much ventilator support, um, those are guards for stopping dialysis, just clinical improvement. So basically, just to summarize, it's indicated in severe life-threatening poisonings, and it's not based on the dose you ingested or the serum concentration, it's all based on your clinical symptoms um, of being, your severe clinical symptoms, and um, cessation is based also on the uh, reduction in those clinical symptoms. All right, great. Yeah, this is one of the ones where I think they avoided a numerical threshold and said it's a clinical judgment. And I think barbiturates, kind of like alcohol, is depending on your tolerance. Is you know I've seen patients where I'm looking at their barbiturate level and saying, boy, they probably should be comatose, but they're talking, and vice versa. Sometimes, so it's basically what's the drug doing to the patient? What the, not specifically what's the numeric number that's in the body. I think the other important thing is that they, they tell you, you probably ought to make the decision early in the first 24 hours, get them to a place where they can be dialyzed, see which way they're going clinically. If they have these severe symptoms, coma, shock, uh, refractoriness to supportive care, then yeah, just dialyze them. It'll probably shorten their ICU stay, sort of hidden between the lines there, and then maybe avoid some ICU-related iatrogenesis that goes along with that. So. You know, again, less common as an anticonvulsant drug in this country, but the one that kind of replaced it as a more common anticonvulsant drug was carbamazepine. And we run into the same sort of hand-wringing about when we should dialyze those patients. So tell us about that is our visiting uh, resident, Sean. So uh, carbamazepine is a drug that is used to treat seizure disorder, but has been uh, used more frequently now to also treat bipolar disorder, neuropathic pain, and hyperactivity. The mechanism of the medication is that it blocks a sodium uh, channels in the presynaptic uh, vesicles and re reduces the release of glutamate, the excitatory uh, amine in the CNS, uh, and it also uh, decreases the release of similar neurotransmitters. It also blocks uh, NMDA receptors and adenosine receptors, all of which are excitatory. 
The metabolism of carbamazepine is that it is metabolized by cytochrome P450 uh, into an active uh, metabolite carbamazepine 1011 epoxide. It also has this interesting uh, metabolism in that it uh, auto-induces its own metabolism. So in acute ingestion, the half-life is anywhere from 25 to 65 uh, hours, but when you have repeated continued dosing, where you have all the auto-induction, the half-life is really down to 12 to 17 hours. Uh, the therapeutic range for these medications ranges 4 to 12 milligrams per liter, and toxic doses is usually at around 40 milligrams per liter, but at lower doses, they've definitely seen some toxicity. Uh, the toxicity of this medication in the central nervous system causes altered mental status, seizures, movement disorders, and in the respiratory system causes depression. Uh, one of the other interesting things about carbamazepine is that it, it structurally is very similar to tricyclic antidepressants, and so it does have some anticholinergic effects, reducing the uh, GI motility, and there's been case reports of uh, levels of carbamazepine peaking 100 hours after ingestion. Uh, it also has uh, effects on the cardiac system, leading to a variety of things, sinus tachycardia, uh, bradycardia, conduction uh, abnormalities, AV blockades, QRS prolongation, and it's also been uh, associated with, of course, death. Unfortunately, um, there is no antidote for carbamazepine. The treatment is usually supporting the airway, breathing, circulation, the ABCs, giving sodium bicarb for widening of QRS, giving fluids and vasopressors for hypotension, and giving benzodiazepines for seizures. Um, Elimination-wise, you can give uh, activated charcoal, and multi-dose activated charcoal is quite effective, but a lot, like a lot of the other medications, uh, overdoses of carbamazepine causes sedation and uh, leads to the patient not protecting their airway very well. And as we've mentioned earlier, decreases the motility of the GI system. So elimination with uh, multi-dose activated charcoal is at times not optimal. And so the group wanted to look at the possibility, of course, of dialyzing carbamazepine. And they found that carbamazepine is a small molecule uh, with low volume of distribution, anywhere from 0.8 to 1.4 liters per kilo. It does have some significant protein binding, but overall they thought that the dialyzability of carbamazepine was moderate. Uh, they looked at a total of 74 study and has a nice chart here where they looked at 71 patients that was intoxicated with car carbamazepine. And in 40% of them, there were respiratory depression. 100% uh, of the patients had decreased level of consciousness. 40% uh, had seizures. 18% had hypotension. And 12% had dysrhythmias. And two of the patients in this uh, 71 uh, patient cohort uh, did pass away. Um, and so after looking at all of their studies, they made a few kind of generalized uh, observations. The first thing that they noted was that the risk of uh, prolonged coma and mechanical ventilation is not benign. Uh, they noted that there are no antidotes for carbamazepine poisoning. They noted that although multi-dose uh, activated charcoal is effective, uh, had some limitations with patients who are altered and decreased GI motility. 
they noted that ECTR can rapidly and effectively remove carbamazepine levels and suggest that, um, can that ECTR can improve um, a patient's clinical status uh, more rapidly than other types of elimination. And so they, their general recommendation uh, is that they would recommend dialyzing a patient if they are having seizures that are refractory to general uh, management, uh, and they would recommend dialyzing a patient if they had any life-threatening dysrhythmias. And both of those recommendations are 1D. Uh, they suggest that dialysis should be started if someone has prolonged coma or respiratory depression requiring mechanical ventilation, uh, and also that uh, dialysis should be considered if they have persistent toxicity, meaning the concentration of carbamazepine uh, continues to rise despite other uh, modalities such as multi-dose activated charcoal. Uh, their preference was intermittent dialysis. Uh, they recommended stopping dialysis once the carbamazepine level is lower than 10. And they also recommend that while you're dialyzing these patients that they continue to be on uh, activated charcoal. Yeah, so this also, thanks, that was good, it was great. Uh, very much like the phenobarb, there's not a specific concentration of the serum where they uh, suggest that it should or should not be done. Um, it's a clinical judgment of severe, and again, the most severe cases get dialyzed. We've all certainly taken care of many, many cases of carbamazepine where they're sleepy and they wake up within a day or two, but these are the cases that are above and beyond that where they're actually having severe effects like seizures and uh, dysrhythmias. Unfortunately, putting people like that on a dialysis machine becomes very, very tricky. It's hard to manage someone that critical. So the thing that kind of left kind of vague is the suggested, when do you do it if it's a prolonged coma, if toxicity persists? You don't have a good answer for that. So, you know, waiting for these horrible clinical scenarios to play themselves out with seizures and dysrhythmias sometimes is waiting just a little bit too long. But like the other recommendations, they do suggest that you get in touch with the nephrologist and have the patient in a location where it can be dialyzable, although they hesitate to pick a number they did say in the body of the text that clinicians should suspect major toxicity if it's confirmed that an ingestion is greater than 100 milligrams per kilogram or a total of 20 grams in all in adults. So perhaps some guidance there, although not part of their ma mandated when to dialyze, when not to dialyze ingestion. And of course, we know people tell us they took a whole bottle and they haven't taken the whole bottle. So it's got to fit the clinical scenario with rising levels and deteriorating clinical status. Um, and again, this, like phenobar, multi-dose activated charcoal, or MDAC, is usually a pretty good modality to start with and seeing which way things are, are going. Um, the other drug that comes up with uh, bipolar disorder is lithium, and this is one where we do a fair bit of dialysis and perhaps need some guidance from the group. Again, this is a 2015 article from the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, that is coming from a nephrology-based journal. And tell us about that one is our visiting resident, Rachel. Um, so lithium was the first agent with demonstrable therapeutic use in the manifest of bipolar disorder. Um, but its uses have been limited by a significant adverse effect profile and its exceedingly narrow therapeutic index. Um, so the mechanisms poorly elucidated. 
it modulates effects on signal transduction pathways and uh, neurotransmitters. So it suppresses inositol signaling um, by depleting intracellular inositol and then inhibits glycogenase based kinase, um, which is thought to decrease neurotrophic and neuroprotective processes. Um, and it also decreases norepinephrine and dopamine release from neurocriminals. Um, and may transiently increase serotonin. So it is a small monovalent cation, the mass is seven daltons. Um, and it's, let's see, serum concentrations uh, peak in 30 minutes to two hours after you take it. There are modified release um, preparations that peak in four to five hours. Um, overdose is different usually because um, there's prolonged gas gastric absorption, pumping, um, of insoluble aggregates, and then you have a reservoir um, for continued absorption. Um, it distributes widely in total body water, does not bind to serum proteins. Uh, volume of distribution is around, um, let's see, it's 0.5 liters per kilo, um, but increases to 0.7 to 0.9 with time, so these people who are chronically on it. Um, it takes 24 hours to diffuse into the CSF. Um, there's no metabolism, it's freely filtered excreted entirely in the urine. Um, so 80% of lithium um, that is filtered by the glomerulus is reabsorbed, 60% in the proximal tubule, 20% in the thick descending limb. Um, the problem with all of that is that if your GFR decreases, um, such as with volume depletion or a diuretic, um, then you increase your lithium levels. Um, so the elimination half-life is widely variable um, based on your age, your kidney function, and how long you've been on it. Um, the half-life uh, typically is 12 to 27 hours. It can be as high as 58 hours based on um, the aforementioned properties. Um, and then, like in elderly or um, chronically treated patients, they have the, the longer half-lives. Um, so as far as lithium poisoning goes, there were um, almost 7,000 cases reported to poison control in 2012. 17% were... Um, moderate to severe effects, and 11 people died. Um, you can see acute overdoses, acute on chronic, and then chronic, um, which happens if there's a change in their dose or declining kidney function. Um, so we see these relatively often, but some of them look different. The therapeutic steady state is 0.6 to 1.2 milliequivalents per liter, so um, that's its narrow index because of mild toxicity can be observed at just 1.5 to 2.5, and then moderate is 2.5 to 3.5, and then above 3.5 is severe toxicity can be seen. Um, but it's highly variable depending on the pattern. Um, so, and depending, based on the fact that it takes 24 hours to be used into the brain. Um, so the history and the clinical findings and kidney function are important because you can have a patient um, who's asymptomatic on presentation. Um, mild overdoses usually present with drowsiness, nausea, vomiting, GI effects. You can have the um, neurologic effects like agitation, muscle weakness, and ataxia, but the more severe symptoms are um, coma, convulsions, and myoclonus. Um, and then the, you can try and use the GI symptoms to distinguish whether or not you have a mild um, or severe overdose. Um, you can see cardiac changes on your EKG. What we tend to worry about as far as dialysis goes is the syndrome of irreversible lithium effectuating neurotoxicity. 
Um, and it's a neurologic complication of lithium toxicity, small number of case reports, and they are largely cerebellar sequelae um, after the lithium is discontinued. Um, so you end up with tremor, extra pyramidal symptoms, gait difficulty, nystagmus, dysarthria, and cognitive defects. Um, there's no definitive treatment. Um, so usually the treatment is um, supportive care, discontinuation of the lithium, volume resuscitation um, uh, with isotonic saline, and then activated charcoal doesn't blind, bind lithium, so you can't use it. Um, gastric lavage or whole bowel um, can be performed in large injections. Um, and then the most efficient reported intervention likely to remove lithium is hemodialysis. Um, so Extracorporeal treatments are often reported and recommended, but um, they're infrequently used because of the lack of clinical um, consensus. So they're maybe either undertreated or unnecessarily exposed um, patients to hemodialysis, but that's why they're looking through all of um, through all of this information. So they identified 507 articles. They ended up using 166 studies, um, and then they found reliable information with um, patient data on 228 patients. Um, so their dialyzable, the dialyzability, they, um, they said that there are favor, favorable chemical and pharmacologic properties of lithium. So like we talked about the low molecular weight, low protein binding, um, and the low volume of distribution. Um, so it's, and that was all confirmed by their literature review. So hemodialysis can clear 180 mils per minute um, of the lithium and the kidney at best can clear about 25% of the GFR, which is 30 to 40 mils per minute. Um, and often these patients have kidney impairment, so you get down to an average of 10.6 mils per minute. Is what you're looking at. So there's a huge difference between doing hemodialysis and waiting for them to clear um, the lithium in their urine. And they also refer to lithium rebound um, because you can have redistribution of the lithium from deeper compartments um, or from extended release formulations. Um, so their general recommendations is they recommend ECTR in patients with severe lithium poisoning. Um, and let's see, so because it's highly dialyzable, um, 27 of their panel members uh, strongly voted for ECTR in patients with severe lithium poisoning. Um, the benefit um, was defined, let's see, they have the conditions below. So the indications, um, it's uh, ECTR is recommended uh, 1D um, if the kidney function is impaired and the lithium is over 4 um, or in the presence of decreased level of consciousness, seizures, or life-threatening dysrhythmias irrespective of the lithium level. Um, and then it's suggested, even this is 2D, if the lithium level is over 5, um, if there's confusion present, if the, or if the expected time to obtain a lithium level um, less than one milliequivalent per liter with optimal management is going to be greater than 36 hours. Um, they recommend stopping ECTR when the lithium level does get below one or there's clinical improvement um, or after a minimum of six hours of ECTR um, if the lithium level is not readily available. Um, and measurements should be obtained over 12 hours to determine a, if a subsequent ECTR is needed um, 
due to the, the fact that they saw a rebound in the patients with extended release or redistribution. Um, so the choice of ECTR, the recommended intermittent uh, hemodialysis was uh, preferred, 1D was their recommendation. Um, so, and then CRRT was an acceptable alternative, but only if you didn't have intermittent hemodialysis. Um, and then after initial treatment, both continuously um, RRT and intermittent hemodialysis were equally acceptable. That was 1D. So those are their recommendations. Um, it sounds like most people know that you're supposed to to dialyze lithium if they want to put some numbers on it. Yeah, no, I think they um, help shore up the numbers that we've kicked around for many, many decades, in fact, that... Yeah. Um, levels of a four um, are high risk. Levels of a five are really high risk, even with mild confusion. We talk about lithium encephalopathy a lot, and how the patient's not processing their words clearly and are talking slowly and processing slowly at those levels. Um, and you know, the other thing they mention is that perhaps that these fake patients need longer dialysis. They recommend up to six, four to six hours of dialysis as the optimal time limit talked about all sorts of equations that have been used to estimate that in the past, but probably just having a, an easy-to-remember number is probably easier. This is another one where you don't want to pull the dialysis catheter out, where there's a rebound, where the level could come up, although nowhere near as high as pre-dialysis levels. It may be enough that it's worth one more dialysis session to really get all the dialysis as it re uh, with the amount as it re-equilibrates from the intercellular spaces back into the extracellular spaces. And lastly, one of the few ones where really CRRT may be an option after dialysis to kind of combat that that rebound effect. Um, really, none of the other agents we talked about really has a stronger recommendation um, for it. But clearly, this is a very dialyzable substance and one that we see on a reasonably regular basis and have to struggle with the recommendation of when and when not to. So thank you. Um, changing gears almost completely, um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, methanol. You might say, where's ethylene glycol? Isn't that like one of the big ones? And unfortunately, they haven't gotten around to that one yet. But um, there may be some parallels to be learned from uh, the recommendations for acute methanol poisoning. Um, again, this is published in a critical care uh, medicine journal uh, from last year. And tell us about that is Matt Davies. Perfect. Um, yeah, so like all the other ones, consensus statement telling us, you know, when when to do dialysis for methanol poisoning. Um, so methanol, like we know, can cause significant morbidity and mortality. Um, a lot of times in epidemics with illicit alcohol consumption, and the real in-organ damage is that it causes permanent visual loss and then motor and cognitive disorders um, when not treated. And that's basically from the formaldehyde and formic acid that's, that's allowed to form. So our treatment for this is usually blocking the methanol metabolism uh, by blocking the ADH, um, either by ethanol or methanol. And you can kind of see the, the pathway there that we're very familiar with in, in figure one. And then additionally, we can do extracorporeal removal, um, A, to remove the toxin, B um, to correct the, the acidosis. So, like all the other articles that we've discussed, the extra group is trying to um, come up with an evidence-based guideline um, for when we should be recommending uh, 
same analysis. And so, um, basically, if you look in box three, they kind of summarize all the group's uh, recommendations regarding the, the removal and when do when that they think this is indicated, but they kind of go into their rationale to so kind of talk about um, all their different indications that, that they came up with. The first one is um, basically an indication for dialysis or extracorporeal removal in severe poisoning. So they defined you know, severe poisoning as coma or seizure from uh, methanol itself. Uh, and then additionally, any visual deficits, uh, given the fact they kind of quote a few case reports or case series that when the patient underwent hemodialysis, they had reversal or you know, halting the progression of any ocular toxicity. So that would be an indication for hemodialysis. Um, and then in addition, they quote a pH of less than 7.15 as kind of an aggressive number. And then as a little bit more conservative, they say less than 7.2. And here they're quoting um, some other case and heat series, showing that pH is related to morbidity and mortality. Uh, and along the same lines, if the patient is persistently acidotic uh, after both the antidote and supportive care, um, that would also be an indication for dialysis. But here they don't give an actual number, so it's kind of unclear you know, if the patient comes up to 7.25 or 2.8. Is that good enough? Um, it's a little bit unclear, but if the patient's persistently acidotic, that would be an indication for, for dialysis. And then, kind of all along the same lines, they, they quote, um, looking at the anion gap. So if the anion gap is kind of more aggressively, greater than 24, or a little bit more conservatively, greater than 20, that would also be an indication. And that recommendation comes from, you know, your anion gap is basically coming from or formic acid, um, it you know, correlates pretty well, the anion gap does, with the formic acid concentration. And the formic acid concentration has a prognostic ability, so therefore the higher the anion gap, the higher the um, formic acid, and therefore uh, that's an indication for dialysis. They do quote one case series where all the deaths that were reported with methanol in patients with an anion gap of greater than 30. So uh, their, their recommendation is to dialyze anyone greater than 24. And then well, the next indication is just purely based on concentration. So this is one where you know, we can actually make, or they've actually come up with a, an actual cutoff. So it's important to know if you just reading this and you're not too familiar with the levels, you can get confused because they, they're quoting milligrams per liter. We often talk about milligrams per deciliter. So um, if someone with a 700 level would be quite uh, sick, but for us, that's really at seven, a level of 70. So that's important to, to realize. Um, so kind of their evidence is based off really early studies um, that just used off of 50 or you know, here 500 uh, for dialysis uh, without any uh, ADH blockade. And they kind of just stuck with that um, without much evidence. 
um, again, like we were talking about, this is saying without any uh, you know, blockade, without any ethanol or ethanol, it's hard to think of a scenario that you'd, you wouldn't have ethanol or ethanol, but you wouldn't have dialysis. So, um, something to consider. And then, because the half-life of methanol is quite increased when you block ADH um, up to 54 hours, and then coupled that with the cost of the methanol and all the complications of ethanol, you kind of want to find a balance of, of when to be recommending dialysis. So then you kind of set that balance point at uh, if you have ethanol, um, they recommend doing dialysis with the levels greater than 60. And then if you're, if you have phenopazole, uh, dialyzing at a, a level greater than 70, kind of makes no real good sense. You know, what, why they're making that 60 and 70. It's, um, but that's what they've said. With the thought that, you know, phenopazole is, you know, quite expensive. So if you're just getting above 70, Maybe more cost-effective to do dialysis, and then with ethanol, ethanol you have many complications, electrolyte uh, complications. Um, not to mention that they're going to be intoxicated for you know, three or four days, um, so they have a little bit lower threshold for, for ethanol. Um, then they go on to a couple of other indications. Um, renal clearance does account for about 25 to 50 percent of the total clearance, and so if the patient has Renal dysfunction, they quote it as GFR less than 45. That would also be a, an indication for dialysis. Um, in terms of what kind of hemodialysis, based on case reports and case series, um, intermittent dialysis, like many of these other toxins, does appear to be superior in remo uh, removal, but if you only have continuous, that would also be acceptable. Um, this comes up a lot, um, and it's given us some recommendations for what to do with our ADH inhibitors, the ethanol and the methanol during dialysis. If you're um, treating with ethanol, that dose should be doubled, and then if you're using the methanol, instead of Q12, you should switch that to Q4. Um, and then when to stop dialysis, they've kind of set an artificial level of 20, um, which we've kind of used in our practice, um, but a lot of people don't, you know, aren't able to get readily uh, available levels, so if that's the case and you're just doing empiric dialysis, they say do dialysis for four to eight hours, and then you repeat labs, and obviously if you're having recurrent acidosis, you can do it, go ahead and do dialysis again. Um, those are their main uh, recommendations. A lot of the, um, the recommendations, they kind of say up front that these aren't absolute and oftentimes when patients get a dialysis they're all also getting other antidotes so it's hard to say if dialysis is helped you know, the, the driving factor of them getting better or not. Yeah I mean of the two alcohols clearly methanol is the more scary in that it can lead to blindness which can often be permanent or cerebral edema and coma and death although both can lead to death so we often hang our hats, so to speak, on a single level, and they sort of stay in that same range. Um, you know, 50 milligrams if you don't have an ADH blocker, or 60 or 70 if you do, depending on the quality of that ADH blocker. 
as a guideline, um, but they also recommend any of the bad stuff like a pH of 7.15, which is a little bit lower than some of the criteria we've used in the past, which is often at 7.25. Um, but still, you know, there's sort of a sliding spectrum of how sick these folks get. And I think once you start getting acidotic and you haven't been blocked with an ADH blocker, I think probably the best thing to do is to um, go ahead with hemodialysis. I couldn't help but notice a paragraph that may be of interest to you where it says the use of ECTR in the treatment of asymptomatic methanol poisoning may be economically favorable and practical, but you got to see their supplement, which they give you a link to. And, and we've talked many times about when it, when's it worth just sitting in out for five days with methazole versus when is it best to just dialyze them and be done after, you know, 12, eight, four to eight hours of dialysis and then a follow-up level post-dialysis to see if you've achieved your goals. Um, any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, and I mean, uh, what we looked at in our mm-hmm. literature, it seemed that any level of uh, ethanol you know, greater than our treatment potential did appear to be uh, cost-effective. So it's interesting. And I, would, I would say, you know, definitely once you get up um, 50, 70, definitely becomes cost-effective no-brainer once it gets, you know, 100 to 200, but, you know, in Alaska, we all, you know, where it's more remote, rural areas, may, you know, transport may be prohibitive, and it's completely fine uh, to just block them and, and wait it out. Yeah. It is the context of where you, where, you, where you live depends on what you get. Right. All right. Um, last, we're going to talk about... Um, Thallium. Thallium is kind of interesting in their recommendations. One, I would say we don't usually see a lot of thallium, but we've had a case within the last year that was very interesting here locally. But two of all the other recommendations, which are either based on severe clinical symptoms or at least a level that many people consider severe, thallium, we often can't get levels. And by the time you wait for the severe stuff to happen, um, you know, usually it's a fatality. So this is one of the ones where they may recommend it based on um, a high suspicion. Peter, our fellow, is going to tell us about that. All right, well, we'll get started with thallium. Um, not a very common poisoning, not a very common overdose, so just go through some basics for it. You've got an oral bioavailability of the salts approaching like 90 to 100%. Um, interestingly about thallium, we're looking at a basically a two or three compartment model um, with an initial apparent half-life of approximately about five minutes. Um, we get CNS penetration in about 24 hours. Um, this is also a Substance with a fairly with a large uh, parent volume distribution, anywhere from three to ten liters per kilogram, which would kind of make you think that it is not amenable to dialysis. Um, highest concentrations are usually found in the kidney and liver, following that with bone, stomach, and other organs. Um, it's normally excreted unchanged from the body via bile or feces, which manifests about fifty-one percent of the excretion, and about twenty-six percent of it is excreted through the urine, the remainder weighs out, or saliva, tears, sweat, breast milk, uh, through the nail, hair and nails, which is forms kind of a basis for testing at some points in time. Um, uh, with its extensive, uh, large period of distribution, extensive enterohepatic recirculation, they found terminal half-lives to be reported anywhere between two and four days, um, and sometimes prolonged all the way out to 15 days. Uh, an overview of poisoning. It used to be used as a rodenticide, still used in some other countries as well as an herbicide. We used to use it to treat ringworm for quite some time. 
It's still used in optical lenses and in extreme cold thermometers and electric lighting. Um, it can be a poisoning in other countries. I think the last one I was able to find in the U.S. was the Mensa murderer down in Florida, George Paul. Uh, he murdered a woman by putting thallium in her coke. Didn't like the noise that the neighbor's boys were making with the car. Thought he was going to get away with it. I think he's still sitting in jail in Florida right now as well. Um, we have reported fatal oral doses of anywhere from six to eight milligrams per kilogram. Um, you know, other things that we do use it for, we use it radioactively for our rectal testing, and those are just considered to pose no threat to human at all. We're looking at less than 10 micrograms and use at that point in time. Um, its real toxicity comes from its ability to mimic potassium. Um, they have a similar charge, similar radii. Um, we also get inhibition of pyruvate kinase and succinate dehydrogenase. We combine sulfhydro groups and interfere with cross-linking and keratin. Again, looking hair, nails. Um, the most common characteristics that we find, alopecia. About 100% of people who get thallium toxic have alopecia, as well as looking at this ascending peripheral neuropathy, which is sometimes painful. Um, severe cases have been noted to have altered mental status, coma, loss of airway protective reflexes, respiratory muscle paralysis, and uh, cardiac arrest. Um, the onset of mental status change is highly variable. The most common symptoms we see, the GI symptoms usually occur in minutes. Um, we get that rapid development of this neuropathy as well, then within about five days, everyone is going to get alopecia. Um, the early alteration of mental status is just a poor, poor prognostic value. We can do blood and urine testing, although urine testing does not really correlate with anything that we see. Blood testing would be preferred. Uh, you can also do hair and nails. Um, in the acute overdose setting, oral gastric lavage is thought to be a pretty reasonable thing that you can go ahead and do. Um, and activated charcoal and repeated dose activated charcoal have a very high absorbing capacity for thallium, um, which kind of makes you wonder if you want to die last to begin with. Uh, in the past, forced potassium diuresis have been tried, as well as some chelators. Um, the problem there is you actually push thallium into neural tissues, worsening that neuropathy, also potentially worsening that altered mental status, which is what you want to avoid doing. Um, Prussian blue is our orally administered antidote. Uh, that's our ion exchanger that's actually been very effective in fecal elimination of thallium, and at least in several animal studies and models has proven to be very efficacious and improve survivability. Uh, problem with Prussian blue, not everyone has a stockpile of it in their office like we seem to do. <laughs> it can be, be pretty hard to, <laughs> it can be pretty hard, hard to come by. <laughs> um, you can get some pretty, they report some excellent plasma clearance rates greater than 100 milliliters per, uh, milliliters per minute when using hemodialysis, uh, a little bit slower with hemoperfusion. Um, the large uh, volume of distribution and kind of intercompartmental transfer makes it slow, so you can get this increased rebound that we see with also with other drugs as well. Um, most of the data that they have, they've never been able to establish, and they were able to find it in a dialysate for some people. Um, they were finding only that about 3% of it was actually cleared in a six-hour run for dialysis. Part of this is on old data, so they also believe that maybe that's going to improve and get a little bit better with the newer dialysis modes that we have. Um, yeah, and then, the, again, they push forward. They 
there's some uh, further evidence that hourly removal is not the way to go. You want to try hemodialysis, so hemoperfusion, and they seem to think and find data that says that it is at least equivalent to fecal elimination via pressure blood. Uh, currently, the recommendation, the general recommendation, is that they are that they want you to do ECTR in the severely poisoned valium patient. Um, ideally, within a 24 to 48 hours, which back in the kinetics, if you're thinking about that compartment model, if you know in the first 24 hours you can get it hooked up and you can probably go ahead and pour a lot more thallium out of the blood before you get time for redistribution. Um, they did go ahead and give us actually guidelines and recommendations based upon levels. Um, one they did say is if you highly suspect this exposure, which I suppose would be the person that comes in and says, I just swallowed a bunch of thallium, or a neighbor says, I'm trying to kill that person and I gave them a bunch of thallium, then you have to go ahead and have your indication. Otherwise, they're pushing for blood concentrations of greater than one milligram per liter, which they gave a 2D recommendation to, um, and then they gave a 3D recommendation to levels that are in the 0.4 to 1.0 milligram per liter. Uh, again, ideally their timing would be to go ahead and start within the first 24 to 48 hours. Obviously, first 24 being the most ideal, 48 being well. Um, they did find quite a few people, well, at least 11 deaths in the literature when they were started on dialysis after 48 hours. Uh, goal for cessation is that you want to make sure that you go ahead and get that level down to less than 0.1 milligrams per liter for at least 72 hours. They gave that a 2D recommendation before quitting. Um, intermittent hemodialysis, again, is a preferred method with a multiple compartment model that you're going to continue to go ahead and get rebound as well. Um, if you do not have dialysis, they do say that you can try the hemoperfusion or continuous renal replacement therapy if dialysis is not available. Problems with hemoperfusion are there's relative scarcity of the cartridges. I suspect that they're almost all gone at this point in time. Last I heard, there was one person kind of doling them out and that he may have ran out. But, yeah, if you've got high suspicion for thallium poisoning and it's in the first 24 hours, it seems very reasonable to go ahead and get those people dialyzed and get started. Yeah, I mean, again, a rare one and probably the very low amount of data, but it's one where you have to have, they walk in the door, like you say, and instead I just drank a bottle of this, you guess like, start getting them dialyzed, um, try to make the phone calls to find Prussian Blue, which, you know, it's hard to find except through um, REACTS or some organization like that. And outside of the country, I don't even know where to recommend that people start looking for it. But it's one that, uh, again, we have to have our antenna up to jump on early and, and, and treat early. Unfortunately, many of the cases are these sort of like homicidal events like you described where no one really knows what's going on for several days, and then by then it's maybe too late to really think about dialysis, but maybe not too late at least to try to get the radiogardes, uh, the Prussian blue for uh, treatment to try to help as much as possible. So again, um, just some of the many uh, things that the X-TRIP group has recommended. Um, in our reading list, there's a link to their website, the xtripworkinggroup.org, where all these Things are summarized, and some of the references are there if you, if you want them. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit about tricyclics, but I'll make it easy for you. Don't dialyze tricyclics. There's no evidence in their paper that they published to suggest that. Valproic acid we also covered with the previous journal club, so you're going to have to go back and listen to that one if you want to get the punchline on that. But for those of you who are listening who want to just remember the simple things out there, it's A, B, C, D, let me P, 
PP. So aspirin, bromide, carbamazepine, Depakote, lithium, ethylene glycol, theophylline and thallium, methanol, excessive acids like metformin, phenobarb, and paracetamol. So there you have our now copyrighted. Uh, no, you can use that ad lib all you want. We'll see you all next time. Uh, thanks for listening to us.